0: Hi, Peter. Hello, Serge. So uh, we're going to be talking about trauma and uh, and traumatic memories. hmm Okay. And that's a subject on which uh, many people have some misconceptions or wonder. You know, um, you know, in a way, I think we think of memories as bedrock, as solid, and. Mm-hmm. Maybe that might be a place that um, we can enter this topic.
1: Yes, actually what I would would say is that really, in a way, memories form the bedrock of our very identity,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: of who we are. And if if, uh, we found out, which happens to be the case, that memories are tremendously unreliable, then what foundation do, does our identity stand on? And if you understand really the complexity of, and the interrelation of different kind of memories, then we can accept an identity that is more fluid rather than fixed or concrete or reified. So I think an understanding of memory, just understanding of the memory processes themselves are so valuable in how we go through our lives uh and therapeutically of course they're very important because a uh, therapists are always helping clients or very frequently helping clients deal with such difficult memories
0: mhm so so in a way in listening to you uh we can listen to you on parallel tracks, there is a part that says, okay, you've uh, paid a lot of attention to traumatic memories and dealing with them as a way to heal trauma, but there's another level in which we can listen to what you're saying in the sense that uh, memories are what forms a bedrock of our identity, and uh, they're not the reliable bedrock that we think they are, so that there is more of that fluidity of our identity and ourselves and kind of listen to this in parallel process.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. And And then the next question or the next step here is, well, okay, really what is memory in the first place? I think to go to first assumptions, what is memory? And the answer to that, which is what basically where I wrote, wrote my, 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 my uh, last book, my previous book, uh, on trauma and memory, brain and body in a search for the living past, is because clearly the past plays a, an important role in our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. And so let's see. If that's so, and I think most people would agree on that, you know, because especially with traumatic memory, because when people have traumatic memories, uh really they're unable or trauma, they're unable to imagine a future different than the past. And that's not a good situation because that keeps us repeating the past. So let's step back a little bit and look at uh what are some of the different types of memory mm-hmm. and how they might come together um, uh the the most common memory and, and the one that most people think about or say this is think that this is what memory is about is also confusing to therapists as well and this memory is uh so called well there are two basic types of memory explicit and implicit and each of them has at least two sub-categories and actually a number of sub-sub-categories. So declarative memory is, um, you know, I go down to the store on the corner, and I know that I need butter, eggs, chicken, uh, some olive oil, something like that. But it's not that big a list. So I keep it in my mind. It's called working memory. And I go down to the store and I recall what I want. I get my eggs and blah, 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 blah. The same is, you know, when I'm traveling around, uh, Europe, and particularly in Switzerland. Eh? I know that I get, come down from my flat, I go to the, uh, to the tram station at schmiede and I know the next stop is Bahnhof wiedeken Bert, Staffacher, if I take the 14th, and so forth. This is important. You can't navigate the world without this. There certainly wouldn't be any technology without declarative memory. However, in terms of its power and its impact on our lives, it's really like relatively inconsequential. One percent, maybe, of the total effect of memory on our behaviors and our feelings and our moods, uh, our behaviors and our our moods, um, that is has nothing to do or very little to do with declarative memory very very little to do so again the first type of explicit memory and you tell me if i'm giving too much detail here no
0: no that feels great that feels very very great and uh, that sense of very concrete uh, okay. sense of what it is and and in a way the the context, in a way that's like a, it's it's uh, it's important moment by moment in terms of everyday task but Correct. very little in terms of the big
1: things in our lives that's right. And the, it's the type of memory we believe all our memory is about. Yeah. Again, even therapists are doing, you know, very often are asking the person to deliberately remember something. Well, that's a declarative process. Okay. So, the second type of uh, of explicit memory are called episodic or autobiographical memories. And they're a lot more interesting. They have different hues and qualities. Uh, the for example you drift back and what I found therapeutically is that these uh episodic memories, so called episodic or autobiographical memories, have a lot to do with how our life progresses. Let me give you an example from just from me. Uh, when I First day of school for my fifth grade class, I uh, was walking home with some people that I knew, some friends from class, and, uh, you know, we were all talking about our new teacher. And I said, oh, I have Mrs. Kurtz, and she is the worst teacher that I've ever had. And believe me, you know, uh, all of the teachers I had before her and after her, uh, you know, today they would have been they would have been prosecuted and probably spent time in prison for some of the sadistic things they did. So to say that she was the worst, that was, well, let's just say it was exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. And however, as I was telling my friends this, I get a tap on my right shoulder, and I look around, and it's Mrs. Kurtz. Okay. I and mean, even as I tell you this, I get a little twinge of my chest here. Yes, yes, I can and imagine. she looks at me she with eye contact, and she says, Oh, Peter. She remembered my name, which was pretty amazing. She said, Peter, uh, am I really that bad? And the story, the importance of this memory, is that probably if I had not had this episodic memory, I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have really opened my curiosity and supported it through academic learning. She, uh, she really um, uh, helped me learn instead of being punished for not learning with the other teachers. And after that, uh, when I was in middle school, I found a teacher who was a mentor for me, and the same in high school, and then the same in university and in graduate school. So that moment, you see, where I have that episodic memory, takes me through a whole trajectory trajectory of my life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and where I am now. Because I, you know, directly and indirectly, you know, I'm mentoring tens of thousands of students because somatic experiencing trainings are happening all over the world. I mean, we have now about 20,000 students and practitioners. So again, I think without this Without her grace, right. without her humor, I don't think I would have, you know, I probably would have been a dropout. So, so,
0: so, that's a, so that moment is in a way akin to uh, a key frame from a movie uh, that when you see it, uh, it it's like orients your, your sense of what the movie is. Or like a defining moment, or something that uh, that captures the, your entry point into every, uh, you know, more than just this moment.
1: Yes, I, I like what you I uh, like the term you use, defining moment. That's a wonderful. Uh, and if I had talked to you before I wrote Trauma and Memory, I would have used that term. Yes, episodic memories are very much defining moments, and I think, well, I think there's uh, more amp more than ample evidence. That this is not just a human form of memory. You know, a number, for example, a number of birds studied, birds were studied, uh, the scrub jay in particular. And what they do is they, you know, they get their seeds and so forth and they stash them in different places. They bury them and they put them, you know, by the, uh, by trees and so forth. And when they retrieve those, uh, those nuts or they uh, they go, not only do they know exactly where they are, but they know which ones they did first. Mm-hmm. So they go and get those, so they're having the freshest. So And that's a t- tremendously complex memory, uh, and I believe it is, and some of the researchers, some of the ethologists looking at this really believe very strongly that this is the, the biological root of our episodic memories. They're very important for our lives, and again, there, you know, like the, the infamous and the famous infamous, uh, story about Miss, uh, Marcel Prost when he, his mother, when he had a cup of tea and he dipped in a, a madeleine, one of those French pastries. And then boom, he was transported back to the streets of his childhood, walking through the narrow streets and alleys and so forth. It brought him there, but he didn't consciously think, hm, I think I'm going to remember what it was like when I was a kid walking through the streets of Dublin. It was this association that took them there. So again, in that sense, it's much more subtle, much more nuanced than declarative memory.
0: But, you know, as you're describing the the genesis of it in the birds, for instance, uh, remembering that sequence, uh, so there is a sense of, in a way, memory being associated with action and sequence of movement, uh, as opposed to memory being abstract
1: ideas being stored. yes. Yes, they're there for a reason, you know, no, I believe that nothing makes sense in biology or in psychology outside of the theory of evolution, mm-hmm. that's really what the unifying factor is for, you know, for all of the, the biological and behavioral sciences, so, okay, so let's go on now, so this is, it's now starting to get a little bit more interesting. Good. Next, we go to emotional memories. And these are much further out of the realm of conscious awareness, so-called conscious awareness. And these happen like all of a sudden, we're with a friend or a lover or something like that, and all of a sudden we get into this really intense, heated argument where we're blaming each other for something. That's an emotional memory that's playing out and interfering with our current stream of awareness and our relationship. Something there from the past is registered and is tagged with a powerful emotional memory. Emotions that we know are very powerful, especially those of fear, anger, and sadness. They're very, very, very powerful. So so we might you know just see somebody who reminds us of somebody from our past and all of a sudden feel great sorrow or or joy. And these emotions are much more the the, the episodic memories we sort of drift, they have feeling tones, but they're not emotions. We don't have uh, episodic memories of fear or terror, something like that. That they don't. That's not what what they did, what they encode. But the emotional memories are very powerful and compelling in how we carry out our lives. We have one more type of memory, which is so, the most. So,
0: just to to just stop to to uh, that, that emotional memory. Comes with a very uh, stronger encoding of the emotion, so that uh, in a way, it just it would be like a movie that would have uh, sight and uh, sound, but also emotion attached to it—that color. Uh, yes. So, very, very strong code
1: is part yeah. of. Uh, yeah. To use your analogy, or go further with your analogy, you're watching a movie, and it's an interesting movie, and then it's something absolutely horrific happens, and you just. <clears throat> you're horrified, you're aghast. That's akin to the emotional memory. Now, emotional memories are deep. And what people don't realize is there's a strata of memory which is deeper, way, way deeper generally than even the emotional memories. And these are what are called procedural or body memories. And those are generally, if you look in academic psychology, um, X. Those memories have to do with um, with skills, motor skills, motor learning. So, for example, a child the first time they get on the bicycle, and the parent or an over, uh, older sibling is by their side, and they walk together. And then, the ch- then at one moment, the parent lets go, and the child is riding a bicycle. Think about what that entails, that the child has to learn very rapidly all kinds of uh, physics extrapolations. They have to learn about force, they have to learn about momentum, they have to learn about center of gravity, they have to learn about turning radius, they have to learn about all of that stuff implicitly. If you wanted to learn how to ski, for example, and you got a book on skiing, and that's all you had, you can be up on the ski slope with that book, and you will not be able to learn how to ski. Right. You know? So, so, and what I've added to this, to this mix, and also procedural memories in, involve what are called valences of approach or avoidance. And I'll give you an, an example of that, which I think was, uh, was fairly revealing. Uh, one day in my probably mid-forties, mid-forties, I guess, uh, I was visiting my parents in New York. And I had gone down and spent the day in museums looking around and enjoying myself. Uh, I was heading back on the train and it was rush hour. And the car was packed with, uh, with mostly with men, all wearing more or less ready suits, with newspapers under their arms. And I had the strangest feeling as I just looked to one part of the car. And I just couldn't understand what it was. And it seemed to me to be related to this one man, fairly tall man. Uh, and I just watched it for a while and I felt a warmth in my belly and an openness in my, in my chest, my diaphragm and chest. And then, um, uh, at 205th Street, that's the last stop on the D train, uh, he also got off. And so I went up to him and touched his arm. I didn't know, again, I had no idea why I was doing this. I touched his arm and the words came out of my lip, out of my lips, Arnold, and we looked at each other. Well, he was in my first grade class some, what, 35, 38 years ago, and I entered the class late. Uh, I was small for my age, my ears that you see right now, those are the same size ears I had when I was five or six years old. And so I was bullied a lot. And Arnold was the one kid that really befriended me. And so again, that was this approach avoidance, mm-hmm. which then took me into a episodic memory. So seeing,
0: seeing him uh, put you into uh, the procedural memory, the same way as, say, riding a bike or skiing, uh, that you went into that relationship, that moving, that acting, felt, uh, action relationship with him.
1: Yes, that is correct. That is correct. And, I mean, you think about it. That's miraculous. Mm-hmm. But those memories are going on with all of us all of the time. So a person for example who has had sexual abuse or sexual trauma uh they um you know when when their when their lover when their um when their partner touches them and they freeze that's a procedural memory and you can work you can understand it you can do behavioral interventions and so forth which may be of some use But you fundamentally can't change that until the procedural memory changes. Or said another way, until the memory completes itself and so this can then be designated into the past.
0: So so I want to just stay there a little longer because then in that sense, we talk about procedural memory and that moment, that procedural oh. memory is like a how-to, a track, a procedure manual that says when in that circumstance this is a prescribed way of doing things and you have no way to deviate it unless there is a way that it can actually, uh, you can find a way to, to go, let it get its course and then you can go beyond it
1: right very well said actually very very well said so it needs contacting them and, and their body memories and you know again a lot of times people struggle when they recover a traumatic memory they go through the question that this is real if this is false and so forth and I'll give you an example and how the procedural memory changed and how the everything above that changed as well Um 1980. Eight or whatever, nine, maybe eighty-nine. Uh, I was starting a uh, move out to uh, to Boulder, Colorado, and I was asked to see this young man who was in a fairly serious depression. Uh, he, uh, I think, uh, he saw a therapist who who was training with me, and they they asked me if I would see him. Well, he had been in a, he had seen a therapist about a year ago for a depression. I mean, a much a mild depression compared to what he was experiencing then. And she said to him, and I think he was having sexual problems along with the depression. And he said, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, but your symptoms are exactly the same kind of symptoms my patients who had been ex- exposed to uh, sexual and ritual abuse. Act. So after that, he joined the group with her in coercion, I think. And he, the people in the groups were reliving all of these horrendous memories. And he was too. And he went again deeper and deeper into a depression during this time. So when I saw him, I reassured him that we were not going to go to try to get any memories. And I could see this Mm -hmm. relief on his face. And I explained to him a little bit about somatic awareness and what we do in somatic experiencing. And and so I guided him into some simple awareness exercises. And he... Reported, uh, after a bit, well first he reported some pain in his lower back. And then as I helped him to find out what was underneath that, he felt a strong tension. And, uh, and uh, throughout his whole lower back and pelvis. And I guided him to very slowly feel into the tension and then just to let the tension move his pelvis, move his body in any way that the tension would want to. And so his back started to arch as he pulled his pelvis backward. And then he reached this moment, and he just took this deep, deep breath. Tears came rolling down his eyes. And again, I continued to guide him until the tension released and then he felt a wave of feeling through his whole body, and especially of warmth in his pelvis. And at the end of the session, we were talking a little bit, and he said, you know, when I did that exercise, a picture came up, and it was a really strong picture. When I was 12 years old, um, I had to get a circumcision, that it was uh, a, uh, supposedly a medically necessary circumcision, and his mother, who felt very uncomfortable with her own sexuality, um, and st- she was supposed to take the bandages off and clean, you know, and clean them. And instead, she just ripped them off, mm-hmm. and that was what was going on. That was what was underlying his depression, um, but. Getting away from that. This is an example of how important it is to work with the procedural memory, allow them to complete their meaningful course of action, and then allow that to bubble up because that was the emotions, that was the tears, the tears of, of sadness, of, of, no. of loss, and then this memory, which is more more like an, a you know a not a flashback, but it's kind of between a flashback and an episodic memory mm-hmm. of being able to see his mother and then realizing what this had cost him in his life, in his sexuality. And we did a few more sessions, you know, to really be able to get more sensation throughout his body. And he um, then uh, started dating a woman and... Uh, Uh, I don't know if they eventually married, but they became very close and he is able to have a healthy sexual relationship, something he could not even imagine Mm -hmm. before. So, again.
0: Let's go back a little bit to the moment of articulation with that episodic, that uh, procedural memory that's recovered there, because uh, in a way we're going back to it, but obviously not in such a way as to re traumatize him. So, there was something in which you helped him connect back with that experience in a way. He obviously did not want that to happen. He wanted to avoid...
1: uh, Yes. Well, that's one of the fundamental tenets of somatic experiencing in, in all the books I've written, is not overloading the client. Not uh, reactivating these trauma circuits to such a degree that they're unable to, to observe them and to let them move through. You know, to the nervous system, if it's if it's reliving a traumatic event, quote, reliving a traumatic event, so with just a lot of emotion and so forth, to the, the nervous system can't tell the difference between that and the original trauma. So essentially, you're now having a trauma and then a somewhat identical trauma and you're just adding one trauma to another. So this is critically important. And when we work with these memories, we work to touch into them, to visit them, to access them through the procedural memories, as with this, as with this um, young man. Uh, and that's really the key, because in the procedural memories is the sense, our sense of power. Uh, let me co- actually continue with the episode with Arnold from my first grade sure. class. So, uh, as I continued to walk up the street, uh, we said goodbye and I continued to walk up the street towards my parents' house. I, uh, I had this episodic memory of walking up the street near the house, Gunhill Road, in the first grade and these two kids or twins came and to torment me. And I, uh, and they forced me out into the street. And then I started to, out of the blue, started to swing my arms and I scared the hell out of them. And after that, Nobody picked on me in school, and I became part of the class. Very important. How does this connect? Well, because my being supported by Arnold,
0: Mm.
1: you see, is what gave me enough of the foundation to really know that I could defend myself. So, the way these memories interact, and again, how they... Are constantly re, revivifying and and and, and refining uh, our lives and our identity and how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in the world and how we perceive the world all come from these important procedural memories. You know,
0: so, so when, just in a way relating it to what we were talking about the uh, identity. Um, then uh, you could say that Arnold is a very important part of your identity. The bullies are, and uh, Mrs. Kurtz was, and Arnold is a major part of of your identity. And so it's nice to think of, you know, it gives a little bit more of a concrete sense of our identity made of all
1: these memories. Exactly, because it enriches it. Instead of having our identity based on a fixed memory, usually an unpleasant memory or a Mm -hmm. traumatic memory, having it fixed rather than being able to explore that entire wonderful landscape and the gifts that they give us are so, so important and so, so, so important. And even how these memories go beyond things that have happened to us you know, in the last chapter, chapter, chapter nine, I think, in in uh, in trauma and memory, uh, I talk a, a, a about a, a generational memory, and you know, I've worked with many people who, for example, in a session, a strong procedural and emotional memory comes up of smelling burnt flesh. And some of these were vegetarians, so they weren't even exposed to that. And these, it turned out, in these cases, they had parents, or now even grandparents, who were in the Holocaust, who experienced these horrific, unbelievable, unhuman conditions. And, you know, and didn't make, you know, sense because memory can't go, skip from generations. It, it just didn't make any sense at all. Just a short few years ago, a very interesting experiment was done where they uh, exposed, uh, they gave rats uh, a shock. And then, before the shock, they they gave them the scent of cherry blossoms. So, if rats are at all like us, it's, it's probably a pleasant smell. They seem to like it, they seem to enjoy it. But then if you pair it a number of times with the shock, this is a, you know, Pavlovian conditioning, uh-huh. when you give this the scent itself, what happens is the, uh, the animals freeze and shake and defecate. Okay, that's no surprise. However, in after the fifth, after breeding these animals and going to the fifth generation, fifth generation, when they presented the animals with that scent, they immediately froze and trembled and defecated. Just as though their great, 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 great grandfathers had. It. Mm-hmm. So these things get passed on in the implicit memory system, in the procedural memory system. And it's not only the harmful things that we need to be able to untach from and and, and, and and realize that they're not our memories. But we get very important information. And uh and uh, this is for example in the uh you know uh in the, when we were in working in Southeast Asia after the tsunami, the the, the horrific Southeast Asian uh, uh, tsunami a number of the the uh, tri- tribal people, as soon as they felt the earthquake, they ran up hills. So did the animals. The elephants did that. So you can imagine that the that the that the, that the, the people, that the the, 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 the uh, tribal people, that their their stories were told to keep this alive for Three, 300 years. Remember, but that was the last time there was a tsunami like that. and um, but the elephants and other wild animals. So again, I thought,, hmm, this is very interesting. And then I thought back about uh, a client I had. I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a flight from Denver to Chicago, United flight 232 actually somebody who just wrote a book about that has asked me to give a, a little endorsement for their book and what happened there is there was an explosion and the entire hydraulic system uh was was uh decommissioned was broken and they had a, it was virtually impossible to land the plane but what they tried to do is steer the plane by changing the thrust of the different engines, and they did land uh, in, the, in a near a cornfield, and there was an, there were explosions and fireballs, but um, almost I think more than half of the people survived, and I worked with some of the people who were on that flight. And one particular woman, she, um, uh, when I was working with her with with some of the for uh, some of the procedural memories, she had the memory of undoing her uh, seat belt, of because the, the fuselage was upside down and crushed, and she could feel herself crawling on her belly, and then she saw a light, a pinhole of light, but that's all it was. And she heard the words, Go, go to the light. Hmm. She's also a Buddhist, was also a Buddhist student, so it had this other meaning. But, uh, as we continued the session, and we got to where she was in the cornfield, sitting out in the sun, feeling the sun on her body, she remembered that her father and grandfather both were in airplane crashes, one commercial, the other military, and both of them survived by the fireball by crawling to the light. So that information was transmitted somehow. And again, you could say, well, yeah, but they may have told stories about that and so forth. But even so, how those words come at that moment Mm -hmm. You know, it defies credibility. But again, I think this is one of the miracles and why I've been so fascinated in studying memory and especially studying traumatic memory because we look at wars and things like that and the effect that that's going to have not only on the people in that area but probably throughout the world for generations.
0: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, we, we see right now kind of a, uh, a worldwide trauma. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, so, so anyhow, I guess trying to get back to the basic subject, how we navigate, differentiate and navigate our memories, both traumatic and otherwise, really is we what were, allows us. We were to Talking about, the
0: in the case of uh, that uh, client uh, with the uh, circumcision, um, mm-hmm. the sense of helping find the procedural memory while at the same time giving a sense of safety and
1: empowerment. Key. That was absolutely the key. You, you said it better than I have said it. It was really about that and about the empowerment that I got from Arnold and mm-hmm. how that took me to my power and how my, my implicit memory, my, I'm sorry, my uh, episodic memory with Mrs. Kurtz took me to learning and mentoring and, and being mentored and mentoring. So th- this is, it really, it's much more interesting to have a fluid identity. Mm-hmm. And particularly as, as one ages. And I'm noticing that with myself that I seem to be open, opening to and accessing uh, more procedural memories uh, in the last five or so years, and I'm curious about that. And I, I think that's probably part of the aging process, but also the you know the, the transition mm-hmm. from you know from life to death, whatever that is. So, I think it, it keeps us vital, it keeps us engaged. And, it's, and therapeutically, it's essential to understand the roles and the differences of the different kinds of memory systems.
0: I would like to stay a little bit more on that notion of transition. Um, and uh, uh, either to give you more room to expand or to share with you what it evokes for me, whatever feels right.
1: Uh, Tell I'd, I'd like to know. Like,
0: so, like. so what it evokes for me in that context of fluid identity, you know, um, is a sense of, in a way, more of the procedural memories coming up as a sense of an enrichment of self um, and a feeling, in a way, in that sense, preparing to have a larger connection with the universe as a whole in terms of not finding oneself as an isolated little self Yes, but yes. as, uh, you know, in, at the intersection of all these, uh, these circumstances and, uh, and episodes and
1: moments. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's the richness. It's the richness. And, uh, yeah. And I think it does. It, it gives us a bigger connection, a larger connection. Um you know, for me, a lot of that has come out, I guess, sort of in my Dharma way. Uh, you know, of having de- developed this methodology and, 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 uh, teaching it until it became a, you know, an international programs. Um, but I, you know, in a way, I was hyper-focused on that. And I see myself now much more open to these, to these felt sense images that give me a greater connection.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And give me more of a sense of, okay, not only have I completed maybe some of what I was, my Dharma, commitment in the world but also my my relationship to life in this world and my transition to the next world whatever that is or isn't mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. and so there's that what I'm hearing is uh, the difference between the hyper focused on the one hand and the larger connection
1: on, On the other right. hand. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always felt that developing the work and, and spreading the work was a spiritual commitment. I, I've always felt that. But I haven't so much allowed myself to be held personally. By those presences.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which again are also akin in, in many ways to procedural memories. To, um, to memories which are shared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are interesting times that we're in of course, needless to say. And I think one of the things that I, I hope for is that people will get more and more, get tools to, to be able to work with the, these type of procedural memories so that they are less influenced by fear and rage.
0: This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com.
1: Which again are also akin in, in many ways to procedural memories. To, um, to memories which are shared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these are, these are interesting times that we're in of course, needless to say. And I think one of the things that I, I hope for is that people will Get more and more get tools to, to be able to work with the, these type of procedural memories, so that they are less influenced by fear and rage.
0: This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter go to ActivePause.com.